Welcome to Ask the Sheikh program. Um, this is a program on uh, Radio Ramadan 365. It runs from Mondays to Thursdays from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, the English version, and then the Urdu version is from Fridays uh, to Sundays. And what we're doing over this uh, series of programs is just talking to different people, different guests, different shiokh, uh, and about different aspects in Islam. And I think it's incredibly important that we pose these questions directly to our shiokh uh, and our guests of honour. And then in that way, if there's any questions that you have that you would like to pose to them, um, the best thing to do is to get in touch with us either on Facebook, you can tweet us or you can email us. And those questions we will then hold on to and then pose to our shiok as they come on to the show. So first of all, I'd like to introduce you to our guest tonight is uh, Dr. Nazim Guri. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Nazim. Alaikum alaikum um, Dr. Nazim is a consultant physician in diabetes, endocrinology and general medicine and honorary clinical senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow. He's uh, successfully completed all of the iSyllabus advanced course, uh, mashallah, and all the additional components. Uh, he has a particular interest in the health of Muslims and South Asians in general and has several publications relating to Muslims and fasting in particular. Um, he's one of the two co-editors for the recently published uh, pioneering work by the BIMA, which is the British Islamic Medical Association, uh, titled the Ramadan Rapid Review Guidance. Um, so, uh, Dr. Nazim, just to, to start us off, I was wondering, in terms of the lockdown that we're experiencing mm. at the moment, I mean, you're in the front line here in terms of seeing patients that are coming into hospitals. I mean, what's the general consensus here in Scotland, especially uh, in terms of what's going on with the pandemic? So I think the main thing is there is a lot of uncertainty, uh, both uh, amongst uh, 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 the general public, but more importantly amongst doctors as well. And what I mean by uncertainty, there's a disease that we are also learning about. Normally when somebody becomes unwell, we, we know the disease, we studied it, each patient okay, is a bit different, but we know enough about it to have an understanding of uh, the natural history and what to expect, even in terms of complications. With this uh, uh, coronavirus and, uh, and this kind of variant, this is a new virus in terms of its uh, presence uh, in society. And we are learning about it, not only in terms of the short term, but in terms of the kind of more middle term and possibly long term implications of things, ranging from the symptoms to the immunity, questions about reinfection, who's more susceptible. It's, it is a, an evolving uh, uh, path, shall we say, because we don't... Although we think we might know something, and something else comes up, now we have to understand, is that thing that's coming up, is it an exception? Is it a norm? Is it something that is an exception? Is it a norm? Is it something that is going to be part and parcel? So all these questions are constantly being, are coming up. I'm part of a WhatsApp group, for example, with uh, about another 200 odd doctors across the UK. Uh, largely diabetes endocrine specialists also have a general medical hat like myself. A lot of interesting questions coming up, and a lot of experts, and I mean experts, world and especially and national experts, within their field also within medicine who also have questions of their own and it's interesting seeing the kind of theories that we're coming out with and all the kind of papers that come up also what you see in newspapers and it can be quite a minefield to be honest but i think the long and short of it is that this is a virus which in the main for the majority of people causes a flu-like type illness in terms of symptoms also in terms of how much a person is affected by there's a bit of variation within that in terms of particular age groups people there are people who get admitted and people who become very unwell very quickly sometimes or even falling off their perch after a period of time and it's that aspect that what concerns us a lot particularly when it comes to people of an Asian background we see that they seem to have a disproportionate number of people being admitted to hospital and passing away with this illness and there's various hypotheses that are out there that may kind of explain this or certainly suggest uh, mechanisms but nobody knows for definite so I think with this 
aspect of uncertainty and also the fact that there are lots of people dying. We see the numbers and some people are saying the numbers that we're being quoted aren't the true reflection of things. That may be the case, uh, which certainly causes a lot of concern and anxiety amongst the general population. And do you think uh, amongst the Muslims, uh, especially the Muslim community in Scotland, uh, do you think there is? I mean, we know that we're not in the best of health anyway. Um, but in, no, no, generally speaking, of course. But uh, do you think we are, um, seem, seems to be more susceptible to it because of that, because of our continuing ill health, or is that not the case? No, I do think there's certainly an element of truth in that, particularly if you look at uh, Asian hotspots, be it London, uh, Midlands, uh, north of England, you do see uh, when it comes to the number of people admitted to hospital passing away, the proportion of people that are of an Asian background are higher than a than one would expect compared to the general population. Right. Okay. Now, whether that's a reflection of the fact that there's more diabetes or high blood pressure, or whether it's a reflection of the fact that people live in larger households, and I mean larger households, not so much the size of the property, but number of people living in the house uh, are more, mm -hmm. whether it's because of other factors uh, that uh, remain unknown or genetic, it's difficult to say, but what I would say is that, and I mentioned this on that, that WhatsApp group I was talking about, is that maybe what this coronavirus illness is doing is actually painting a map of how old and how sick populations are in general. And mm. the UK does have an older population, and compared to a lot of other parts of Europe, despite being very advanced in many areas, when mm. it comes to general health, our health is, gen is generally poorer than a lot of other parts of Europe, and that may be a reflection in the kind of death or mortality figures that we are seeing. Right. And do you think the general advice that people are getting, just uh, your advice to the listeners out there would be the same then, just uh, to make sure that they have social distancing, that they don't go out unless they have to? Is that the same kind of advice that you would yeah, give? The, the same rules apply. Sometimes it can be difficult to think, well, I'm okay, therefore, what, uh, why, why, why am I kind of not allowed to go out? But remember, mm -hmm. there can be what we know uh, as uh, asymptomatic carriers. So people who are have the virus, but they themselves are not symptomatic or displaying symptoms as of yet, but are able to pass it on to other people. Mm -hmm. And that's what the general worry is uh, when it comes to this type of disease, uh, these asymptomatic carriers. Um, and I think yeah. what my advice is, the rules are the rules. We might not agree with them. We might not fully be evidence-based, but not everything has to be evidence-based. We can use common sense in matters and go on the side of precaution, particularly when there's so much at stake. Uh, and I accept as well that people get frustrated because the rules can change sometimes on a day-by-day -day basis every few days or every week. But that's mm -hmm. just a reflection of the fact that we are, we are dealing with a moving target in terms of the impact it's having, but also what we're learning about the disease itself. Okay, and I was reading recently that there's, there was an article about, um, I think recently in Independent, talking about uh, certain children that are now also uh, getting corona-related viruses and illnesses. I mean, is there any truth to that? Have you, uh, is there anything that you've read that you know any more about this? So again, in relation to what you have um, raised, I was actually discussing this with my brother, who's a medical registrar and rheumatology registrar down south, and he forwarded me something from the Pediatric Intensive Care Society. This is a very rare phenomenon that we will see in children if it can happen, and there is, and it is probably COVID-related, but I'd like to identify this is rare. Therefore, if you're concerned about your child's health more than you ordinarily would be, then certainly seek medical advice at the earliest opportunity. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, you're, you're listening to Dr. Nazim uh, on Ask the Sheikh program. Uh, like I said, Mondays to Thursday, we're running seven, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. Um, we're on 87.7 FM, Radio Ramadan 365, and also 15.30 AM and medium wave, uh, medium wave, and also on digital radio as well. So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, not just Dr. Nazim, of course, uh, he's more than welcome to come again on, on, on the program throughout the coming weeks, but any of the Sheikh 
that will be appearing uh, on our shows in future. If you have any questions in particular that you'd like to ask about any topic in Islam, then make sure that you do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter and you can email us as well. Uh, Dr. Nazim just gives a quick introduction about the, obviously the COVID virus that's going around and the difficulties that we're all facing. But in terms of general fasting, whether a person should fast or not in terms of their, uh, their health, I mean, what, what factors do you take into consideration when you give that kind of advice? So this is very important. So there's two aspects. One is your general state of health or illness or well-being uh, in terms of any chronic diseases you may have, medication that you're on, your age, your, uh, uh, and, and those aspects. And that has an implication whether you fast or not in general. The second aspect is if you become unwell whilst fasting, which is applicable to anybody and everybody, whether you're previously uh, healthy or whether you have any chronic illness. So I tend to break it into two aspects. So in okay. terms of dealing with your kind of, should you be fasting or not, mm -hmm. that is based on uh, whether the ailment or ailments or age that you have will have too many effects. Will it, uh, 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 will by, if by fasting, will uh, these ailments get worse and therefore you'll become more unwell? Or uh, if uh, by fasting, will this delay the recovery from such an illness if say for example you've got a condition which is getting better it's a long-term condition but it's getting better it's getting better with fasting delay the recovery of this these are okay. the two things that everything hinges on when it comes to whether a person should fast or not and the decision making okay. or a reasoning is based on three uh criteria i might mm. add as well into these two aspects if you have a genuine uh, kind of legitimate or substantial fear of becoming unwell or the, or the recovery not uh going as to plan. So the genuine fear is the third factor. But in terms of determining whether one fasts or not, based on what I mentioned before, we take a, we look at one of three aspects. One is your prior experience of fasting with this type of illness or ailment. Right. The second is common knowledge that, for example, you know that by fasting that either there's going to be uh, a person becoming unwell or there's going to be a delay in the healing. And the third is the advice or the opinion of a a doctor who understands the health condition at hand and ideally is Muslim because then they understand what fasting is, but I accept not everybody can access a Muslim doctor. Okay. Their opinion that fasting should be uh, avoided because of uh, the fact that there could be harm or a delay of recovery. So those are the three factors okay. that we look at and everything kind of hinges on that in terms of the decision making process. Now, when it comes to a doctor giving their opinion, their mm. opinion is only as good as the information they have in terms of the patient in front of them. Uh, right. So if a patient gives only part information, only a snapshot, then naturally the answer will not necessarily be a true reflection of, of the overall uh, health or, or, or well-being of a patient. Okay, very good. The second good. thing is also a doctor's ability to actually understand the condition at hand. I don't know all the conditions at hand. I certainly know a fair amount and I've got experience, but what I, because of where I work and who I work with, I'm able to speak to specialist colleagues, Muslim or otherwise, who are able to explain that disease or condition to me and I can discuss things and get information. Mm -hmm. Now, not everybody has that luxury. Okay. Uh, and that's why we look at various guidance documents that have come out and things to help bridge that gap in terms of getting information on whether fasting may be advisable or otherwise with various conditions. And these are the opinions of Muslim doctors who have got together almost like a consensual opinion. So it's not just one person's opinion. So it's quite strong evidence in terms of guiding somebody. So that's okay. in terms of like the general, whether you should be fasting or not. 
Right, okay, so if a person, for example, uh, does feel that this illness is going to be debilitating and is not going to be able to fast, then uh, the, the person that they should go to for advice then, they should just make a judgment, a personal judgment, you think, in that case, if they don't have a Muslim doctor to go to? So what I would say is that if you go to a Muslim doctor and that Muslim doctor is well acquainted with the, the fiqh of it and Sharia mm -hmm. has studied, uh, maybe someone like myself or maybe not even has studied as much but has studied with us or has understood the concepts, they would be an adequate person to go to who can kind of give you advice from both aspects of things. Uh, if however the, the doctor is a bit unfamiliar with the, the fiqh side of things or is non-Muslim, then it should certainly get the medical advice and all the necessary information board, and then go and speak to somebody who is learned the Sharia, whether it's an Imam, whether it's a scholar, whether it's a, 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 a kind of established student of knowledge, or whether it's a Muslim doctor who understands it but doesn't understand the condition, but has certainly is able to kind of help guide in that matter. Okay, and I think that's how I'd advise people to approach things. What I would say is that a doctor in general, Muslim or otherwise, will mm. always understand uh, the overall picture because they have a, a legal and clinical responsibility towards the patient so they will never cause any harm because they're accountable for their actions right. uh, so the if a muslim doctor or even a normal doctor says it's okay to fast then you probably are okay to fast if okay. they say perhaps not to fast there might be a, a precautionary element particularly if they're a non-muslim doctor mm -hmm. uh, in which case you might want to speak to an imam as well and not to kind of get the imam to overrule the doctor but to maybe come back with certain questions which can then be asked which may then facilitate fasting the other thing as well is that you might need certain things to be put in place before you fast, medication changes, education, whatever. And mm -hmm. if that's not available or accessible, then that may actually prevent a person from fasting because you're not able to prepare yourself properly for fasting. Uh, and that's just okay. as important. So particularly in the current climate where uh, NHS resources have kind of been uh, realigned to kind of deal with the COVID side of things and also because of social distancing and things, it might not be as easy to access a doctor as one ordinarily would be had it been Ramadan at another time of year or another situation. Let me to understand that Ramadan preparation is also has an important part to play in all of this. Okay, and in terms of uh, what we're experiencing at the moment, I mean, all of us are in uh, lockdown and uh, a lot of people are now working from home and what they're finding is that, you know, whereas maybe going to work in the morning and uh, during Ramadan, a normal Ramadan, um, they'd be able to focus less on the fact that they're fasting. Uh, a lot of people maybe are becoming a bit kind of um, anxious about the fact that they're at home, they're having to balance a new kind of dynamic in terms of their family life. Um, and what kind of advice would you give to somebody in terms of not just uh, their physical health, but their mental health as well, in terms of being at home uh, all the time with their, with their family? Maybe, maybe a lot of people are not, you know, don't spend as much time with their family and exactly. they're finding things to be very <laughs> difficult. So how do they find that balance, in other words, in terms of the fasting? So from a physical perspective, because um, the majority of people don't have to wake up early and go to work, their children at home, you don't have a school run, it's actually easier to fast. Why? Because you, you can sleep in a bit in the morning, you don't have to wake up for 7, 8 o'clock, you can wake up for even 9, 10 o'clock, and those extra couple of hours make a difference in terms of your sleep cycle. So right. from that side of things, things are easier. You're not having to necessarily walk to work, or the physical side of things may not be as much. Yes, you can go, you might have a home gym, or you might go for a run, that's, that's in your, but you're in control of that. You're not being necessitated to do a lot of extra physical work you ordinarily would. So that's another positive. The other thing as well is that uh, you don't have long tarawih and have to go out. So again, you have a bit more time on the other side at the night time as well, or you have more control in terms of how you wish to spend that night. So all these things make the fast a bit easier. Uh, yes, the weather is warm, and yes, the days are getting longer. That was going to be there anyway. Uh, but uh, the point as well with this is that 
you can prepare yourself. You can uh, you're not you can stay indoors. You don't have to go outdoors. Um, so that's another thing in your favour. Now that has to be weighed up against the kind of new aspects of working from home, whether it's because you're actually directly involved with childcare, which you weren't before, i.e. you're outsourcing your job anyway, or you are in a situation where you're involved with homeschooling and therefore your routine's a bit different. But again, I would say from a physical perspective, I'm trying to speak to people who probably couldn't have fasted last year, and they're actually finding actually this student might be able to fast or you do intermittent fasting. Uh, so it's more a case of the physical side is actually easier, but in terms of the kind of dynamics of your day-to-day -day, uh, activities and responsibilities, that might require some planning. But the hope is that the lockdown has been there three and a half weeks or so before Ramadan started. So right. therefore, this is not something new. People hopefully have got into routines anyway and have had maybe one eye on Ramadan when they were coming up with their routines. Absolutely. So uh, Dr. Nazim joins us today on Nas the Sheikh program on Radio Ramadan 365. And inshallah, we're posing him questions about general, uh, we'll be posing in a minute about questions about general eating and general health during Ramadan uh, outside of the um, COVID virus and what's going on with the lockdown at the moment, which we've talked about in the first part of the show. Um, so Dr. Nazim, just to go on then about, I mean, treating like this like any other Ramadan, um, mm. what what kind of um, importance would you put on the fact that people should have uh, sahri or suhoor in the morning? Um, sahri and suhoor is very important for three main aspects that come to mind immediately. One is the blessing of sahri or suhoor. Even if you're not consuming in terms of quantity a lot, it is a sunnah and there's a blessing. Hazrat Sallallahu has said himself there's a blessing. And we don't sometimes understand or appreciate these blessings, whether it's because we can't see it or whether it's because our Allah perhaps have a, a lack of trust in them. I firmly believe that a suhoor has a blessing and to take a suhoor as late as possible, even if it's a few sips of water or not much in terms of a calorific content. The other thing from a sahri as well is that if people are taking medication, they need to face medication out, it allows them to take some medication at the time of sahri, which they wouldn't have taken, which they didn't take at iftari or wasn't suitable to take at iftari. So there's that aspect of things. Uh, the third aspect is the nutritional aspect as well. These fasts are now starting off around about 18 hours or so, depending on the time we are following. We'll get close to 19 odd hours. So the majority of time is spent in a fasting state. Therefore, purely from a hydration perspective alone, forget the calorie side of things. It's an opportunity to drink fluid as, as late as possible for keeping the fast because you will then have this window of 18 hours where you can't drink. The other thing as well is that when it comes to eating as well, uh, our tummies tend to shrink a little bit uh, when we are fasting. Therefore, there's only so much you can eat in one meal anyway. Therefore, right. common sense would dictate maybe having something to eat at sahari and then something to have at iftari. Uh, now, some people prefer having a bigger meal like star, some prefer, have, prefer having a bigger meal like suhoor. Everyone is different based on their circumstances. Nonetheless, it's, it's an opportunity to consume food and not have to kind of consume every one day. And I would say as well, in the main, most people are not used to eating two meals a day, let alone one meal a day. Therefore, I advise taking food at both times is uh, of uh, prime importance. Okay, excellent. And in terms of, uh, you mentioned about not, what if someone doesn't have sahri properly? They're not in the habit of eating in the middle of the night. You hear a lot that people are not drinking enough water. I mean, how much is enough water? And, well, uh, as, a general, yeah. as a general rule, when it comes to urine production, we say that people should be making half to one milliliter of urine per kilogram per hour. That's the amount of urine one would expect to, to make. So say for argument's sake, you've got somebody who's 70 kilos in weight and we're with one mil an hour. Uh, that's about 70 mils an hour and over the course of say uh, 24 hours or so that's what about 1.8 or something like that um, okay, yeah, 1. Yeah. 6, 1. that's the amount of fluid that we lost through urination forget the water loss through stool and sweating and things and you you, you and the way you take fluid in uh, is largely through 
your, your food consumption, i.e. the food you eat, but also more, more importantly, the fluid that you drink. There's also fluid uh, in, uh, in the food that you eat. And just to give an example, if you were to take rice that you buy from the supermarket or the cash and carry, and you were to take, say, half a cup of rice and you cook it, what happens? The amount of rice, the number of grains stay the same, but the, each grain becomes bigger. Why? Because it's absorbed water. Right. And that absorption of water then enters your body and you then get water from that as well. Okay. So uh, it's important to understand that we get uh, fluid from two main sources, but about three quarters of it comes from the, uh, the fluid that you drink. And right. common sense will also tell you that there's only so much you can drink in one or two hours before mm. you feel sick uh, <laughs> yeah. and your bladder starts failing and you actually empty it all before the start of the, the fast. So the general rule I'd tell somebody, you probably want to consume about two liters of fluid a day. Yep. Uh, usually glasses are around, what, 250 to 300 ml. So you're looking at some of the six and eight glasses for that size. Tea, coffee, juice, they also contribute to your fluid intake. But tea and coffee do have a diuretic type component, which what basically means it causes you to pass urine as well. Right. So I think as much of it should come in the form of clear fluid. If somebody wants tea or coffee, that's fine. But the vast majority, 80% or so, 90% should come in the form of kind of standard kind of water to be honest okay and if a person's taking medicine obviously they can take the advantage of that time um before sahur and uh, after iftar to take their medicine then yeah even, even and, if they have that's, yeah. go on that's why it's important to see your doctor because they'll advise the best time for you to take your tablets in ramadan for some people i've given advice to take stuff at iftar some at sahur and actually some in between iftar and sahur depending on what they're taking okay brilliant thank you so much uh, dr nazim is with us uh, on this program nasta sheikh and he's answering questions about uh, generally eating and drinking habits during Ramadan and health-wise, uh, what's best and what kind of routine is the best to get into. Uh, we've also looked at, at the beginning of the program in terms of the virus and how people are in lockdown and how that's having an effect on people as well. Um, so the wisdom then in terms of eating and drinking properly and having your sahur. But then let's get into the actual uh, food things that we should be eating. I mean, we generally speaking, uh, a lot of uh, people in the Muslim community, we don't have the healthiest of food when we break our fast or when we keep our fast. What's your advice in terms of the types of food that we should be having? So number one, we are creatures of habit and we are creatures of preference. So we prefer certain types of food and we like having certain types of food regularly. That will mm -hmm. not change in Ramadan overnight. Uh, okay. So I know people like samosa, pakore, and kind of the fried food, and the rich food. I'm not mm -hmm. saying do not have that. One right. thing is instead of having it every night, maybe <laughs> have it two or maximum three times a night instead. So a that week, way, two a week, you mean? Yeah, a week. You said uh, two, three times a night. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, night. Gosh, yeah. uh, Freudian slip there, Freudian slip. <laughs> yeah, so two to three times a week instead of every night. Uh, okay, brilliant. So in that way, you're, you're still you're enjoying that. There's no point saying I'm fasting 18 hours and I've been told when I open a fast by Dr. Nazim to have like rabbit food. Uh, what the hell? Yeah. Uh, I'm not there to do that. I'm there to say strike a balance. Okay. Even when it comes to things like for example, pakore or samosa, not all of these items have to be fried. Right. They can be baked. And by mm -hmm. baking your food straight away, they become a healthier option in that you can often have them more than that. Because when you fry something, let mm -hmm. me redefine frying. Frying is boiling in oil. So when I talked about rice and how the rice gets bigger when you boil it, yep. when you fry something, uh, 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 by extension, you are going, that item of food absorbs the oil. So you get the calories from that oil as well. Okay. Uh, can't, so can't, can't be healthy, <laughs> right? So exactly. So what is so what I'm saying is, you really need to cut the amount you're having. So rather eat less because it's very difficult for us to eat less when we're hungry. Uh, identify maybe two or three nights a week at most where you'd have it when you'd ordinarily had say six or seven. So you're halving the amount you're having it. 
and to, to balance that on other nights with uh, healthier options that are not fried, that are baked, that are fresh. Um, mm. When I mean fresh, I'm not talking about a fresh samosa. I'm talking about things like fresh fruit, uh, having um, uh, things that are less calorie dense. So food, that, so one of the problems with having fried foods is your food becomes calorie dense. So for a unit of weight of food, so a gram of food, there's more calories mm. because, you, because you're frying it. So if, for example, I, I, I'll give you a simple thing. If I gave you a kilo of banana to eat or a kilo of cucumber to eat, which of the two items of food, although the same weight, has more calories? Ah, uh, I would guess cucumbers. Yes, and a simple uh, proof of that is the fact that you see uh, tennis players eat bananas during their matches as uh, a source of, of energy. And of cucumbers course. are 99.9% water uh, in terms of content. So what I'm saying is that particularly if you're somebody who's overweight, who's trying to lose weight as well, yep. you don't need to go for a calorie-dense food. Your body will break down. But you do need to eat because you're, the, the, the sensation of hunger is based on two things. A, the need for energy, but B, more importantly, the fact that your stomach is empty. Uh, so your stomach being empty isn't the same with actually having a need for energy. So having foods, uh, for example, uh, so having fruit, even within fruit, for example, apple, which requires you to chew more, will fill you up quicker than say, eating grapes, which are actually quite rich in energy. So even when there's a healthy choice or so-called healthy food, we can even make choices within that. So the thing with eating less is that, um, as I said, also calorie density is important. The type of food that you eat as well, if the food is broken down more slowly, then you're uh, A, less likely to feel hungry and B, you'll get a kind of sustained release of energy. Because although your body stores the energy uh, of all the, uh, stores all the kind of food, uh, and broken down food in your fat and muscle cells and then release energy later on. You can sometimes get these kind of dips during the day when you kind of feel that lull when the kind of body is kind of switching to a different mode. Mm -hmm. So having food with a low glycemic index, so kind of uh, we talk about starchy food, but food particularly that have perhaps kind of a wholemeal component or whatever, uh, then these starchy foods take even longer to break down. So brown bread, for example, 